The book of Numbers gets overlooked, partly because it has a really boring name. Which is a shame. In the Hebrew tradition, the book's name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's an epic travelogue about Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land promised to Abraham. Now, this pilgrimage should only take about two weeks on foot. But instead, it takes them about 40 years. That's crazy. It's practically half of someone's lifetime. Yeah, it's a very long camping trip with lots of interesting stories. But let's remember, it's most helpful to back up and start with how this book is designed. Right. So the book is broken up into five sections. There are three wilderness locations broken up by two road trips that link all the pieces together. The first wilderness section is Mount Sinai, right here on the map. And then in the second section, they travel to a region called Paran. A whole bunch of things happen here in the wilderness of Paran. And then in this fourth section is Israel's road trip to Moab. The book ends with a large section in the wilderness of Moab, right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Now, through all of these sections, the storyline just flows like a gripping dramatic movie. Everything starts great, but then the trip goes horribly wrong, and it all ends with the final redemptive moment, the surprising act of God's grace. So let's jump into the story. It all begins at the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and we've become really familiar with this mountain. Yeah, if you remember, Israel came here after Egypt, and they formed a covenant with God here, got the Ten Commandments here, built the tabernacle here, and they've been at this mountain for one full year. And now they take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. Right, and they're given these instructions for how to organize all those people in the camp. God's presence in the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Levi and the priests around it, and then the rest of the tribes around them. And this pattern, it's this visual symbol for how God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people. And they're told that when the cloud of God's presence moves, they're to pack up and travel with it. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the Levites out in front, and then the tribe of Judah, and on and on. And this order is also a symbol for how God's holy presence is their leader and guide through the wilderness. We begin the second section of the book with enthusiasm as they leave Mount Sinai and travel up to Paran. God's with them. Everything's organized. This is going to be great. But it's not great. After just three days on the road, the people are complaining about their hunger and thirst. And then even Moses' brother and sister start bad-mouthing him in front of all the people. Not a great start. But now we're into the third section, the wilderness of Paran. This is where they send the 12 spies to scout out the promised land. Two of those spies come back, and they're really optimistic. But the other ten are freaked out, and they don't trust God, and they go around saying, we're going to get annihilated in there. And so they start a mutiny, and they try to appoint a new leader who's going to take all the people back to Egypt. And so basically, they are refusing to go into the promised land, and God honors their choice. He says that this generation is going to wander for 40 years and die in the wilderness, and only their kids will get to enter the promised land. You know, this story here gets brought up many times in the Bible by different authors. Yeah, and it always serves as a reminder that while God remains faithful to his people and his promises, he will honor their choices. He'll, he'll let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. Okay, so the trip's been a disaster so far. And it gets worse here in this fourth section as they're traveling to Moab. Even Moses has a moment of rebellion and is disqualified from entering the promised land. Then there's another rebellion among the people. It results in this snake attack. And what makes all these rebellions even worse is that every step of the way, God has been providing. He's been offering forgiveness. He's been giving them food and water and this crazy stuff called manna. Yeah, what is that stuff? Yeah, no, no idea. But in spite of all this, they keep complaining. And they say that they wish they had died in slavery in Egypt. 
If I was God, I would just give up on these guys. You would think. But that's what makes this story in the final section so surprising. Israel has just arrived in Moab, and the king of Moab, he's freaked out that this huge group of people is traveling through his land. So he hires this pagan sorcerer named Balaam to pronounce curses on them. This guy means business. Yeah, and so Balaam, he says, okay, I'm going to pray to the Hebrew god, and let's see what happens. And three different times he attempts to curse them, but each time he finds that he can utter only blessing. Most surprising is the last blessing, where he prophesies that out of Israel will rise a victorious king. And this king is somehow going to be connected to God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through this family. So here's Israel rebelling down in the camp, totally unaware that up in the hills, God is protecting and even blessing them. The book ends here in Moab. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. They count up everyone again, just like at the beginning. They're leaving the old generation behind, including Moses. But before they leave Moses, he gives them his last words of warning and wisdom. And that speech is what the next book, Deuteronomy, is all about. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. With this in mind, please turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. If you're reading out of your immersed Bible, it is on page 226. Numbers 13. The Lord now said to Moses, Send out men to explore the land of Canaan the land I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the twelve ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out twelve men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. Moses gave the men these instructions as he sent them out to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls, or are they unprotected, like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. It happened to be the season for harvesting the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near Lebohamoth. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him 
disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought, too. Will you pray with me? Lord God, help us to turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak. For you speak peace to your people through Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. Do you believe that, that God can do today what he did back in the times of the Bible? You know, in Sunday school, we learn all sorts of stories uh, about God's people and how God shows up time and again in miraculous ways. Uh, for instance, Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den because he, the king is tricked into doing it. And, 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 but God protects him. He closes the mouths of the lion's and Daniel walks out unharmed. Or the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three young men, probably late teens maybe, uh, who uh, refuse to bow down to an idol. They're threatened with being burned to death in a furnace. They still stand firm. They're thrown into the fire. God sends a figure from heaven to, to be with them in the fire. And they walk out and don't even smell like smoke, uh, the Bible tells us. Uh, there, there's the story of, of Esther, who stands in the gap for her people, the parting of the Red Sea, many stories of Jesus doing miracles and, and intervening for people, uh, the Paul uh, in, the, in his missionary journeys, on and on and on. One of my favorites is the story of Elijah. It's a story that isn't really preached on very often, but it's a story where Elijah stands up to 450 prophets of Baal. We have a showdown, kind of high noon. They gather, and all the people gather around to watch whose God is the right God, whose God is more powerful. And, uh, and, and it's kind of cool because Elijah is basically trash-talking them, saying, you can dance, you can sing, you can pray all you want all day long, but your God is not going to show up because he's not real. But step, step back and watch my God show up because he's the real deal. But my favorite story of where God shows up and intervenes in powerful ways is the story of David and Goliath. And probably as a young boy, I resonated with that one because as a young boy, he's a country boy. I grew up in the country. He, he takes on a giant. All he's armed with is a slingshot and some rocks in his pocket. And he, he stalks onto the battlefield. Other men, older, more experienced, bigger men from the, of the army will not take on Goliath. But David is... is is not afraid because he looks at the size of his God and not the size of the giant standing before him. Do you believe that God can show up today like he did back then? You know, when we're young, when we hear these stories, we're full of faith. You know, and we tend to, we tend to take these things and, and, and believe them and say, yeah, God could do that. God could show up. He could do for me what he did for them. Uh, you know, Jesus himself said, unless we have faith like a little child, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and, and so as a child, we, we think, OK, God can do this. We don't have any doubts. But then we go through life. We get a little bit older. We have more life experience. Things happen. Expectations aren't met or whatever. And, and our, our courage begins to fade a little bit. 
And our faith gets chinked away, a little chinks in our faith. And, and, and it gets to the place where we begin to uh, kind of put limits on God and what he might do in our life or in our world. And, and we put limits on ourselves about what God could do through us. No, I, I really shouldn't do that. We, we, we become risk averse. And we begin to become more cautious, more careful, and we call it being responsible. But as you look at the story of, of God's people in the Bible, we see, that, we see that that is not the way that God expects us to live. I mean, if we truly are children of God, as the Bible says we are, then we're children of the most powerful being in existence. And it looks kind of odd, isn't it, when, we, we, when we're scared or timid or overly cautious? I mean, from cover to cover, the Bible, this, this book, it's about this one being, God, who can do anything. It says that with God, nothing is impossible. It tells us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has for those who love his son, Jesus Christ. So from beginning to end, this book shows off God's power and presence and care and that he's true to his word. And so when we as his children are kind of weak and afraid and risk averse, responsible, it doesn't make sense because we've got such a powerful God. Because as followers of God, we should be marked by a power and a confidence that God will show up, that our God will come through. Author and pastor A.W. Tozer writes this about the state of affairs in, in the church. We may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. We've measured ourselves by ourselves, as opposed to measuring ourselves against God's word. We've measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the spirit is all but gone. We've imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Ghost. Ouch. That's kind of convicting. So, so, so what can we do? What can we learn about faith in our story for today that was just read by Jennifer? Let's take a look at the story of Caleb and Joshua in Numbers 13. Now, the context here is, of course, that the people of Israel have been led out of slavery, out of Egypt. Uh, they've seen all sorts of miracles. The plagues, Pharaoh lets them go. They come to the Red Sea. Moses parts the Red Sea. They walk through. The waters crash upon Pharaoh's army, and they're spared. They wander through the desert. They get manna from heavens to keep them alive. Um, they go to Mount Sinai and, and they see God's power and presence through smoke and thunder and, and lightning. And, and, they hear, and, and, and God gives Moses the law so they know how to live their lives and how to worship God. So they've seen all this. God has taken care of them. He's provided for them. He's showed up time and time again. And now they're on the edge of the promised land. This land that was promised to Abraham centuries ago. That was to be their, their inheritance, their, their, their promised land, where they would, the motherland, where they would become a blessing to all people. And they know all of this. And so before they cross into the promised land, they do a very practical thing, a smart thing. It's, it's a military campaign, really, when you think about it. So they, they pick a spy from each tribe, 12 spies, and, and they send them into the land to do some scouting. And it tells us that they're there for 40 days, looking around the land, checking out the, the, the cities, checking out the, the, the population, checking out, you know, uh, opportunities and, and things that could be challenges and what, whatnot. And they come back and the report is, it's a beautiful place. It's full of bounty. It's, we, can, we can make a great living here. It's a beautiful place. But 
The people are huge. They're enormous. They're descendants of giants. And they live in cities that are fortified. Before they go too far, though, Caleb interjects. And he says, um, no, we can do this. We should go right away. God will surely give them to our hands. Let's go. Let's, let's take this land. But then the ten spies who do not agree with Caleb and Joseph push back. And they say this. It's a land that devours its inhabitants. A little bit of an exaggeration. And all the people we saw in it are great height. And we seem like grasshoppers to them. And so you've got these 12 spies. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, we can do this. We believe in a big God. But the other 10 say, we can't do this. Let's be, let's be reasonable here. We, we need to be responsible here. We have children. If we go to do this and we die, what's going to happen to our kids? We need to be responsible. This is way too big an issue. Let's not get carried away with this whole God faith thing. Let's just be glad we're still alive. Let's play it safe. And with sad consequences, the people decide to listen to the advice of the ten. And everyone stops believing, except for Caleb and Joshua primarily. And listen to God's response in, Joshua, in, in, in uh, chapter 14. Uh, God has this to say uh, regarding what is what has happened with, with the spies and their choice, their decision to follow them. God says, How long must I put up with the wicked community and its complaints about me? Yes, I have heard the complaints the Israelites are making against me. Now I tell them this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. You will all drop dead in this wilderness. And he goes on to say that everybody who is 20 years old and above will not see the promised land. Uh, only children who are younger will see the promised land. He says the only exceptions will be Caleb and Joshua. And then the Lord goes on to say that they're going to wander for 40 years, one year for each day of the scouting expedition. Which seems like a, that's a long time. Uh, but that's what happened. It goes on to tell us a story that this is what happens. And, and now they come to, to the promised land. And, and there's Joshua and Caleb who are left. Moses is about ready to die. And Joshua and Caleb are about ready to lead the people into the promised land. My question for you this morning is as you look at your life and you look around at the world around you and the giants and the problems in your life, which attitude and which posture do you take? Do you resemble Joshua and Caleb who look at a God who is bigger than the problems in their lives, who have faith? Or do you resemble more the ten spies and the people who say, Let's, this is crazy, we can't do this, this is too big for us. Uh, and, and in a sense, they put limits upon God and what God can do. You know, we're going to hear voices throughout our life that tell us that God can't do this, that God isn't going to show up, that God is not the same God that he was in the Old Testament. He's not going to do the same things now that he did back then. That you can't change the world there's always going to be issues. There's always going to be people who struggle. You can't change the world. You can't save everybody. Just calm down. Play it safe. Be reasonable. But the scripture, story after story, shows of people who believe when nobody else believes, who pray that their boldness would go even greater and farther. They pray for greater faith, like, like Peter and, and John. Remember the story in Acts? They're preaching. They get thrown into prison because they're preaching Christ crucified and risen. And, 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 the, and the, the, the Lord sets them free from the jail in the middle of the night instead of saying, okay, let's lay low now. We dodged a bullet here. 
they, they get together with their fellow Christians and they pray for greater boldness and they go out and preach the next day. And my favorite part of the story of the spies is what happens 45 years later. It's Joshua 14. 45 years later, Caleb and Joshua are still alive. Everybody else has died. And listen to what Caleb has to say. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spout the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brother is talking about the ten spies who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord. And Moses swore on that day, surely the land in which your foot is trodden, he spied this out. He says, this land you have spied out will be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord. And you skip down and you hear Caleb say, I'm 85 years old today. I'm still as strong. I'm still up for a good fight. I'm still up for a battle. Give me the hill country. Give me the land where the fortified cities are. Give me the land where the giants are. I can do this because my God is greater and bigger and able to do this. Isn't that incredible? An 85-year-old man who, who, who would say that? I want to be like that when I'm 85. I want to be like that when I'm 56, you know? Just to say that. I don't want to be tired and, and risk-averse and safe and reasonable, responsible. We are to be people who live by faith, but it gets harder, doesn't it? It gets harder because things come in. Children, responsibilities, mortgages, jobs, finances, commitments, aging parents, careers, responsibilities. You, when, you're, when you're young and, say, in college, you're idealistic and you think it's, it's easy to go and risk for the sake of the kingdom. Because what do you have to lose at that point? Really? That's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich person to get in the kingdom of heaven through the eye of, than a camel through the eye of a needle. They have more to lose. Test this out. Go to a slum in Africa or India and tell them to leave everything, to take a risk, to step out in faith because God's got a better life for them. They'll say, sign me up. Go to Overland Park. Go to Mission Hills. Go to the suburbs of Wichita. Go to parts of Salina and say the same thing. And I'll say, whoa, wait a second. I, I, I've got responsibilities. I've got things that I need to, to take care of. Let's not get carried away here. I've got a wife, I've got kids, I've got a home, I've got a mortgage, I've got a job. It gets harder and harder at times as we get older. But we, we're called to be like, like, like a Caleb. Our, our faith should grow as we get older, as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit day by day. So what does this look like? In closing, there's two things I want to pull out from this story. And what, what would it look like, the implications, if, if we actually believe these things? The first is, the Bible tells us that God is the same today and yesterday and tomorrow and forever. That, that God is and has been and always will be. That we can trust in him. And we say that we believe that. But let's be honest, sometimes our lives say something differently. Our actions, really, don't they reveal our two beliefs? And our priorities demonstrate what we believe about God and about ourselves? So what would it look like if we truly believe that God is the same God now that he was in the Bible and that he can do for us what he did for the people of Israel? What would that look like? Well, I think it would look like people who are unafraid of what others think of them when they stand up for Christ and live a countercultural life. I think it would look like people who forgive the unforgivable 
like people who put others' needs before their own. I think it would look like people who exhibit peace and joy when it, when it would make sense to complain and indulge in self-pity. I think it would look like people who demonstrate peace even and especially in the midst of undeserved and unexplainable suffering. The implications of such a faith, people around us might begin to believe that, that our God is real and that we believe what we believe is true and that we really do trust God. And people then might begin to investigate and begin to believe and trust in God themselves. The second thing is, is the Bible teaches us that God is bigger than any giant that we face, any problem that we face. So what would that look like? First, let's identify some giants that we might face in our lives. We can face cancer, the dreaded C word. We face our own mortality. We face chronic pain or divorce or broken relationships with kids or family or friends. We can face life, excuse me, loss and grief. We can face misunderstanding and ridicule because of what we believe and how we live our lives. We can face doubt at times when we don't understand what God is doing and where he is. And we can face financial pressures and career disappointments and spiritual attacks from Satan and the forces of darkness. But if we truly believe that God is bigger than any problem, any giant that we will ever face, then we will not be afraid. We'll be courageous. We'll, we'll, we'll exhibit faith. We will face the giants in our lives and we'll see God show up. We'll see God keep his word. We'll see that God will see us through Because isn't this book filled over and over with stories of people who believed that God would show up, that he was faithful, that he was good, and that he was able, like Caleb and Joshua did. And I guarantee you that they had no regrets for stepping out in faith 45 years after the fact. And I promise you that if you step out in faith, that you won't have any regrets either. Because there may be giants in our land, in our lives, but we we'll never, ever forget. Never stop believing that whatever we face, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is the same God in the Old Testament as he is today. And he is able and he is bigger. And God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for uh, the example of Caleb and Joshua, who are men of faith. Uh, who stepped out and, and believed and didn't put limits on what you could do and, and simply took you at your word. Lord, we confess that we don't always do that, uh, that sometimes we fall short of that and we ask for forgiveness when we do that. But, Lord, we want to grow in our faith. We don't want to put limits on you and what you might do and want to do in our lives and through us. And so, Lord, grow us in our faith uh, that, um, that people around us would know that what we believe is, is real and that we really do know and, and trust and believe in a God who is a God of love and grace and compassion and mercy and power. In Jesus' name, amen.